You can go ahead and be seated. And as you do, why don't you give these families a hand? <clears throat> this is always an exciting Sunday when we get to do this. Uh, my name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the opportunity to lead us through the word today. Uh, we're going to be taking a short break from the Exodus series, and I'm going to do a, a standalone sermon on Luke 10 and the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and someone will get you a Bible. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke 10. And as those Bibles are being passed out, I want to give you a I want to give you a question to discuss with a few people around you before we launch into it. And the question is this. If you could get in a time machine and go back to any era of your life, any year of your life, and just relive it again, what would it be? So turn to a few people around you and share what that would be. And if this evokes tears and stuff, I mean, pick a different year. So... Um, <laughs> Because I'm giving you like two minutes, not a therapy session. So um, go ahead and share, and I'll bring us back in a moment. All right, let's go ahead and bring it back in. I'm, I'm sure that there were many interesting answers that you came up with. Um, the way I would answer the question is, among the many times... I'm, Maybe if I knew this person who had the time machine, I would ask him to dial in a date that's not in my life, but actually take me back to a moment where Jesus is having a conversation that's related to the text that we're having today, where he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, this parable that many of us know and many of us have heard, but the depths of his richness couldn't be plumbed out with 50 sermons. It's this moment where Jesus uh, challenges and, and flips the uh, ideas about what it means to love and to love our neighbors well. So with that, let me go ahead and read the text today and jump in. Starting with verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when, they, when he, they saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place where he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, as he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you need, I will repay you when I come back. Then Jesus says here, uh, Which of these three do you think provided or proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell amongst robbers. And then the religious leader he's talking to says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This passage 
Even if this is your first time in church, you probably have heard something about this, something about the Good Samaritan. If nothing else, you've at least encountered a hospital named after the Good Samaritan. Uh, but this is, might be the most well-known, famous of Jesus' parables, It's at least in the top ten. And really what he's addressing here is the question of who is my neighbor and how do I love my neighbor? And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to go to school with Jesus and learn what it means to love our neighbors well. And the particular professor that Jesus has brought in today is this Samaritan and this story. So as we learn from that, it's also important to know that in a sermon about love, this can be a little bit difficult. Because in most languages throughout the world, there are actually multiple words for love. But for some reason, in English, we just have this one word. And so the parents who are dedicating their children, they would say that they love those sweet kids that you saw pictures of. But also later today, they will probably say that they love nachos. And it's going to be the same word. We put so much weight on this word, and we use it in such... Uh, broad ways that it often comes with, with cliche ideas. When you think of love, you think of chocolates on Valentine's Day. You think of maybe uh, hippies with tambourines, um, romantic comedies. It, the list goes on and on. Love is such a potent and overused word that it even makes its way into the slogans of various companies. For example, the NBA is... I love this game. Not as many NBA fans here. I'm going to be 100% honest with you, that's a little disappointing to me, but you'll know this one. McDonald's, I'm loving it. Are you really? Or are you just in a hurry? I don't know if you're really loving it. This, this, is, my, this is my favorite one here. Subaru. There's, their slogan is love. It's what makes a Subaru a Subaru. I thought it was like engines and wheels and all that, but apparently doesn't need gasoline. Just throw a little love in there, and that's what makes it go. But this word love is so elusive that we need a definition. And when we encounter this story that Jesus tells today, I think he gives us a definition in this profound, creative way as he tells this story. The ultimate definition of God's love is Christ and what he is like in his presence and what he does, but he is giving a glimpse of it through the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's walk through this parable and walk through what's happening here. First of all, Jesus is in a conversation with a, what, what the text calls a lawyer, but it's not a lawyer that we would think about today. It's more of a theologian. He was an expert in Jewish law and theology and uh, the, the, the rituals and laws of God's people. And he's tr trying to probably trick Jesus. He's engaging him in dialogue. He's at least, as the text says, trying to justify himself and, and his way of life. And so he asks Jesus how he can inherit eternal life. Jesus flips the question on him, and he says, well, what does the law say? You're the expert. And then he answers by saying that it's to love God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. Clearly, he's been following Jesus and paying attention because he's taking the core of Jesus' teaching 
which is combining this high uh, uh, command that you see in Deuteronomy 6, that the core of what God's people are to be about are the people who love God. And he's combining it with Leviticus 18 and this call to, to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the core of Jesus' teaching. And this law expert actually gets the answer right. Jesus says, okay, well, do that and you'll live. Clearly there's other things going on. This Jewish theologian, this law expert in those days, he pro probably wanted Jesus to answer the question in such a way that he limits the scope of who his neighbor is and who he is obligated to love. So he asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Like a gotcha moment. And Jesus, in his brilliance, could have said, everybody's your neighbor, love everybody. But instead what he does is he tells this, this subversive story that creates all this categorical confusion and, and shows us uh, the unique nature of God's love and the love and the ways of his people should engage in that's distinct among anything else. And as he tells the story, the story begins like this. He tells the story of someone who's traveling on this road this, this dangerous road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and on his way, he's stopped, he's robbed, he's beaten, and he's left out in the streets with nothing and his life dripping out of his body into this road. You can imagine what it would be like to be this wounded traveler, knowing that some medical attention could probably help you, but there aren't people for, for miles, maybe, you don't know when the next person's coming to help you. You can imagine the thoughts going through your head and that, that ultimate loneliness. Will these be the last moments of my life? And then you're so relieved. You hear some footsteps and you look up and it's a Jewish priest. You, you know that he reads the scriptures and that he knows that the highest aspiration or the highest goal of what we're called to do is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. He's an expert in that. And if anyone is going to show mercy and justice in the moment, it will be this religious leader. But he just walks right past him. Can you imagine how deflated you would be in that moment? And then you hear some more footsteps, and you're probably cynical by that point. Is this just another group of robbers who are coming? But then you see it's a Levite. He's from the holiest family amongst, of, uh, out of Israel's tribes. And you think if there's anyone who is holy enough to, to truly care for me in this moment, maybe it's him. Maybe it's this religious leader. And he walks by too. And then you hear another set of footsteps. You look up and you see that it's a Samaritan. And you know that as a Jewish person in those days, that the Samaritans were your enemies. They were your, your, the people that you had a rival with. They were your ethnic, your political, your religious other. And you wonder, is he going to come and finish me off? knowing of the hostility between the groups. And he comes up to you, 
and he's about to put his hands on you, and you know that you're done. And as he puts his hands, he's got bandages. He's got oil. He has wine that he's using to, to wipe your wounds and to care for you. And then he lifts you up onto his own animal, his donkey, or, or whatever he had. And he even takes the burden of whatever that donkey was carrying and carries it on his own. And he takes you to safety. He could have easily dropped you off in the middle of town and then just got bounced and left. But he takes you to an inn. He's in the middle of a Jewish village where it's not good optics for a Samaritan to walk into a Jewish village with a bleeding Jewish person on the, on the animal. But he's not, he doesn't care about the optics. He cares about this guy. And he brings him to the inn, and he, and he says, I'm going to pay two days' wages to care for him, and then any other expense he needs to bring him back to health, I will pay for it. And it's this profound demonstration of love. And then what Jesus does is very clever. He doesn't say, go love like the Samaritan. He actually looks to the religious leader he's in dialogue with, and he says, which one of these people actually showed mercy? And the religious leader, probably with his nationalistic, racist posture that he had, he can't even utter the words, the Samaritan. And he just says, the one who showed mercy, the, the last guy you talked about. Won't even say the word. And then Jesus, in this scandalous way, says, go and do likewise. Go be like the Samaritan. He makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. And in a singular moment, actually giving dignity to the Samaritan as someone created in the image of God and telling this profound story about how we are to love our neighbors well. I just want you to imagine what this would be like in a contemporary sense. Who here likes to hike? Imagine you're out hiking South Mountain or somewhere, and for some reason there's like, you know, little like trail robbers on our, I don't know, uh, this, for the sake of the story I need this part to be a real thing, but it's not a real thing. Don't worry about hiking. You're out on a hike, and all of a sudden you get robbed out there on the trail, and beaten up, and you're bleeding, and you're left out in the blistering heat of the Arizona sun. And you know that what only thing that stands between life and death is someone coming and finding you. And you begin to think, what is going to happen? As you lay there next to the cacti and the rocks. And then you look, and all of a sudden you think you see a furry animal and you're afraid. But turns out it's not a furry animal. It's just... Your pastor, Josh Butler, and his big hair. Uh, and you're relieved. Like, oh, thank you, God, that my pastor is here to care for me. They're always talking about how all of life is all for Jesus and love your neighbor. But Josh is so in his book, like, he legitimately is like this. He, like, drives everywhere and reads books at stoplights. Like, there's, like, no laws against reading and dri driving, but there should be. He's so into his book that he just walks right past you, never even sees you, never even hears you. And then you hear another set of footsteps. And you look up, and it's Andy Carrillo, one of our elders here at the church. You know that he's going to come, and he's going to take care of you. But turns out, Andy, like he does, he's just training for another marathon. 
and he literally just runs right by you. Imagine how you would feel. My pastors, my elders. But then, all of a sudden, you see someone coming, this figure coming towards you. And you see this perfectly coiffed hair that's like, like has like $30 worth of hair product in it. And it's, it's almost like a helmet that's sitting on the head. It's like perfectly designed, this unique hairstyle. And you're like, this must be my other pastor, Jake Slobodnik. He's coming. Um, but as he gets closer, you realize that while the hairstyle is different, there's something a little off. It turns out it's Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea. Very similar haircut to Jake. Uh, and you, you're delirious. You don't even have time to think, why is Kim Jong-un hiking in the deserts of Arizona? But he comes over on his little mountain bike. He, he gives you some medicine, some water, and you ride on Kim Jong-un's shoulders to the nearest hospital. And he says, I'm going to take care of this guy. That's what it would have been like for the hearers in that time. The way that they had heard about the Samaritans had, had associations with it that would be uh, not exact, but similar to the way that you think about like the North Korean dictators and those sorts of things. There's, there's a, a, a fear that would be there, but then you're shocked by the way that the love is happening there. And so the Good Samaritan is in this story is actually an invitation to love in this unique way. And I think from this passage, we can see many implications, but I'm going to just draw out three, three ways that we love our neighbor. And it's that we love in a way that is attentive, that pays attention, that we love in a way that is sacrificial, and that we love in a way that is creative. We see that in this passage here. So let's start with attentive. It is easy to overlook the pain in this world and the pain of people in our lives. It is easy to, to avoid seeing the suffering in the world. Some of us, it's because we're so enthralled with the screens that we hardly can see what's in the face of another person. Some of us, it's because the world has become so intense and chaotic that we've functionally become like ostriches and said, I don't want to hear about the pain in the world. I don't want to hear about the brokenness. I just want some Netflix. But what is different between the Samaritan and the other religious leaders who are on the road, if nothing else, the core thing is that he sees, that he pays attention. In verse 33, it says that the Samaritan, it says that when he's, he saw him and had compassion. That he had attuned his eyes to look for those who were suffering. And as he saw that suffering, he moved towards them. We don't know exactly why the religious leaders stopped. There's a lot of speculation. Maybe they were afraid. It was a dangerous road. Maybe they, they, there was something with ritual impurity that they wouldn't want to touch a, a, a dead body. And, and that would uh, affect their status uh, in the temple. Or maybe they were so caught up with the religious stuff that they were doing that they just couldn't see. They just weren't looking for that man 
on the road. And I've actually been quite moved as I see the people in our church, the ways that we love where we see others and are attentive to their pain and suffering. This is what the passage is calling us to, and I see examples of it all over the place in this church. I see people who are caring for those uh, who who are uh, elderly, uh, how that's a a major challenge here in uh, Tempe. There are many people who are in their homes who don't get out and get to connect with people, and we have people who are actually spending weekends with them. Those who are going and tutoring and spending time with those in the refugee community. Those who are who are helping and just being present with and seeing their coworkers that are being overlooked. I've heard many of you talk about how your main person that you have lunch with uh, at, in your workplace is the people that others are overlooking. And I think this is a beautiful thing because that's what the passage is calling us to. It's calling us to a type of attentiveness where our eyes are open to the suffering of the world and we don't blind ourselves, but we move towards it and we let our hearts actually feel compassion. I don't know about you, but I was moved by this story recently in the news of the football coach who stopped a, a shooting at a school. And the way he did it was unique that there was a student who was very troubled, had a lot of pain, and he comes into the school with a shotgun. And this coach literally embraces him and hugs the gun out of his hand. And even as the, the gun is being taken away, he's still embracing this student. And everything I've seen in the interviews after that, you get the sense that he is a type of guy who saw the students as those created in God's image, as people who have dignity and value and are to be loved. And he did not see a person with a gun. He saw a person who was deeply hurt and needed to be embraced. And you know that he just didn't do it in that moment, that that sort of thing comes from a life that has eyes open and is attentive to the wounds of the world. And so the Samaritan teaches us that one of the main ways we love our neighbors is to open our eyes and to see our neighbors. 46% of adults say that they feel lonely. 47% feel left out, and half say that they do not have a meaningful connection with another person uh, on a daily basis. The the reality is, is that many of us and many of the people we're around while we have a smile, are hurting with wounds that aren't very visible, but we can move with the presence of Christ and see them as God sees them. Number two, love is sacrificial. Think about this. As as trite as love can be sometimes, we know that it actually, when it boils down to it, is it's costly. It's all about the giving of myself and the sacrificing of myself for another. It's not found in the cute sentimentality of Hallmark cards or YouTube videos with kittens. It's the mess of childbirth. It's the burnt arms of firefighters. It's the scars from dogs' teeth on the arms of civil rights leaders. It's the sore knees of the construction worker who's punched in the clock day in, day out for 40 years to provide for those he loves. Love is ultimately about 
sacrifice and self-giving of taking the things that are mine and then making them yours to, to meet your needs, to show you that God sees you and cares for you. And if you think about the Samaritan, he actually gave quite a bit, even more than first meets the eye. So for example, the first thing is he gives of his own possessions. He uses the oil and the wine, which were probably meant to refresh him on his own journey. He uses that to help the wounded traveler. But even more, do you ever think about where he got the bandages? It's not like he's carrying bandages around. He probably, a lot of the commentators have said, that he probably had to rip his own clothes to make the bandages to stop the bleeding of the wounded traveler. And then he puts him at the inn and turns the inn into a hospital and says, I will pay whatever I need to pay to make sure this person is well. He took his own wealth, his own possessions, and he said, I will, I will, I will give this for the sake of someone else in the process of loving them. It took him time. You can imagine that the journey would have been slowed down as you had to carry a person, essentially, with your own donkey. You had to carry them um, many miles. And furthermore, you risked your own safety. You offered your own safety because clearly there's some shady stuff happening on this road, and now you're slowed down, and it makes you vulnerable to attack as well. And then he even risks his own reputation. He's willing to go into this town where it looks like he might have harmed this Jewish man and risk the rep, the, the, his reputation just to make sure that this guy is cared for. He took the things that were his and he looked at them and said, how can I pour them out for the sake of another? Does that remind you of somebody? That is the way of Christ, that he gives himself his body, his life, that we might thrive and that we might flourish. I'll tell you an example of, of this, a story that has to do with some folks in this church uh, that really illustrates this. Now, I've told this story before, but I didn't get much notice on preaching today, so it's a recycled one, but it's a good one, and it's one that honors you guys. Several years ago, there was a group of people who were surrounding a mosque with, there were going to be hundreds of people who were going to bring guns, they were going to burn Korans, they were going to yell obscenities to the Muslims who were entering the mosque. And there were, and this saddened me, I posted about it on Facebook, I did a little rant, and then someone, actually several people, one of them was Aaron, who was doing the foster care stuff uh, earlier, challenged me and said, no, we can't just let this happen in our own home state of Arizona. This isn't a national thing that we can just watch as spectators. And the fact is, is I knew the leaders of the mosque, the, the imams, those sorts of things. And so we set up a meeting with them. And we had this rich relationship where we didn't pretend like we believed the same thing. We would always tell each other, like, I'm trying to convert you, you're trying to convert me. So in the meantime, let's just have some great meals together and be, be neighbors, and then, you know, we'll just slip it in every once in a while. We'll share the, share the gospel, those sorts of things. So um, we were meeting with them, and they were really grateful that Christians would want to help. And we came up with this idea that Christians would get there first, 
occupy the sidewalk before the protesters could get there, and that their main, our main goal was to be a prayerful presence, to be peacemakers in that moment, but also to be a human shield so that if any bullets were fired at a Muslim, it would have to go through the body of a Christian first and thereby reflecting the very nature of our God who did not take the bullet but took the nails and the thorns as he was crucified on the cross to give us life. That that's what we were going to do. So I put the invitation out. Didn't think a lot of people would accept because, you know, it's like, hey, you're going to come be a human shield. Um, It's going to be really hot out. There's going to be people with guns. And then also, it was crazy because ISIS had been tweeting about this event all day like, you better not go there. Bad things are going to happen. So I wasn't expecting much. But my heart was moved as I looked down the street and I saw tons of people wearing the blue shirts that we told them to wear from about 15, 16, 17 different churches in the valley. And the, the, the highest number of people was actually from this congregation right here who showed up. And there were about 250 people, just as many of the, as the protesters. And we came to be a dis, de-escalating presence. We didn't see those protesters as our as, our, as the enemy. We wanted to love them as well. So as they yelled, as they uh, held their guns out, we would send people to give them water and give them a listening ear. And we had people standing there and they were praying for the night to de-escalate. And then it ends without a single shot fired, without a single arrest, and several of the people who had come out as the protesters apologizing to the leaders of the mosque. It was one of the sweetest moments of my life where you sensed the presence of Jesus. And in my conversations with Muslim leaders after that, I mean, we're talking tons of people asked us to come and say, why did you do what you do? Most Muslim folks that I know will like a lot of the stuff that we say here as Christians, but they will say that the thing that they don't get is the cross. But at that time, it was the first real conversations that I had had about the cross where it seemed to make sense as they kept inviting us to go speak to different groups of Muslims and say, why did you do what you do? And we were able to point to the cross and say that what Christ did there is what we were trying to dramatize. And as people were becoming living examples of self-giving love, they caught a visible example of the love of Christ who offered his own body and poured it out for their sake. And as a way of saying that he loves them. So number three, and this is what I'll close with, is that love is creative. Now you might not think creativity and love have that much to do with each other, but I think they kind of do. In this passage, you even see it. Jesus is actually um, expounding upon, um, he's, he's actually expounding upon the the call to love your neighbor as yourself, which if you think about it, it is not a command that just says, go do nice things, but it's actually a call to look at your own life and the things that you use to love yourself and to creatively reimagine those things as instruments for loving others, for the good of others. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying, that you've spent your life becoming an expert at loving somebody. That's not wrong. But what that is, is that is practice for how to love others. And so take the very things that you use to care for yourself 
and think about how they can be used. You, you give yourself a, a, a nice house where it's safe. How can you use that house to love others? You got an education for yourself to help you and, and, and your family. How can you use that education to bless somebody else? You learned how to make the perfectly grilled T-bone steak for yourself. How can you use the skill of grilling to love another? It's a call for creative love. And if Elon Musk and Steve Jobs are out there creatively making stuff, why not approach, why wouldn't we approach the world as inventors of blessing, as innovators of shalom, looking at the very things of our life and saying, Jesus, how could you use this to love others? I remember there were a group of people from this congregation, who I mentioned I love this congregation, who were talking years ago about how could we use our bicycles to love our neighbors? And so the idea emerged that there would be this Tempe bike gang thing. And it was a playful idea, because we had actually heard in the news about how someone had, um, had been beaten up by a bike gang. And we were kind of saying, how can we use the mob mentality, the bike gang mentality, as a way of loving our neighbor? That's the kind of creative ways of loving our neighbor that, that we really want to call people to. So they were asking that question, and the idea emerged, what if we could have a group of people from this church swarming around on bicycles, doing crazy acts of loving their neighbor? So 20, 30 people got together on bikes and started riding through downtown and just started doing crazy stuff. Went into a coffee shop and gave one barista 25 thank you notes because of the good work that they did. Stopped one of the orbit buses. The person probably thought it was like the weirdest heist ever. Like all of these, all of these uh, bicycles surrounding you. And we gave the driver a $300 tip. Um, and probably my favorite one is that we made up these awards called the Awesome Front Yard Award. And we would go around to people who have beautiful front yards that are very good for the, the community. And we would knock on the door. They would open up. And they would look and they would see like 30 people with bicycles. And we would start cheering for them and we would present them with this award, take pictures with them. And it was so fun that actually you had people who were just out riding their bike that started joining us <laughs> as we were riding. And you didn't need much. You just needed a printer to print the awards and a bicycle. But it's the imagination applied to the act of loving our neighbor that brought that about. So the way we love our neighbors, it's attentive, it's sacrificial, and it's creative. And if you are feeling like, I have so much going on in my life, I can't even think about what it means to start loving other people. Can I just encourage you to say it is actually in those moments when you can meet Christ, certainly get Sabbath, get rest, but actually it's in the very places where he has you where you can creatively, attentively, and sacrificially love others. And it's in the challenging times that he actually meets us often. The way I would answer the question of what era would I go back to is it would be um, in like 2013 when my daughter was diagnosed with autism in this few-month period, when uh, our house was robbed, when I was getting death threats from Uzbek nationalists. I can't even get into that story right now. It's a really long one. 
But just to say, it was a crazy season. My wife was diagnosed with something that was pretty intense at the time as well. And a moment came where I actually got to meet, be face-to-face providentially with the person who had robbed my house. And it ended up being this profound moment where Jesus invited me to love him and to care for him in that moment. And, and what I realized is that arrow was so sweet, even though all the things were going wrong, that just the mere name of Jesus in that moment, if you just said his name, I would burst out in tears because he was so good to us in that time. And I want to encourage you that if this feels weighty, it's not about mustering up the strength to go do this and to love in this way, but it's about absolutely immersing yourselves in the love of Jesus. Because it is his love that is attentive to you, that sees you in your most stressed moments, in the worry that you have for your children, in the chaotic, uncertain things that are happening in your work life. He sees you. And it's only when you know he sees you that you can go out and see others. His love towards you is creative. Think about this. He doesn't just sustain your life through a blob of carbohydrates. But Jesus made mangoes. (laughs) And when you sink your teeth into a mango, you know that the delectable taste you have is a taste of God's creative delight in the way that he loves you. And so go enjoy the goodness of his creation. And as you enjoy the goodness of his creation, be released to creatively love others. And you also know that there's no way that you could sacrifice more than he sacrificed for you. And that the brutal things that you encounter in this world, the heavy, weighty things you read in the news, that sort of suffering was what Jesus was entering into on the cross so that he can identify with the worst of the suffering that you have. He is with you in it. But also part of what he's doing on the cross is absorbing the weight and the sin and the pain of the world, taking it upon himself, and that in his resurrection, he creates a a new reality, a, a, a new creation where there will be no more tears. And it's only knowing the sacrificial love of Christ that we can fu- that can fuel our sacrificial love for others. So with that said, let's pray and let's sing some songs to that Jesus. Lord, we, we love you. And we know that our love is, does not originate from us, but you have loved us first. Even when we were distant, even when we were estranged, you loved us and you saw us, and you see us, and you are near to us, and you have given yourself to us on the cross. You creatively love us through the systems of of how you've created this world, and the mere fact that we breathe air into our lungs is just your generous creativity. And we pray that as we encounter and immerse ourselves in your love, that we would love others. We pray that in this moment, you would bring ideas to mind and people to mind that you are calling us to love. And we just pray that these moments of singing and taking communion would just be a way of 
marinating in your posture towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.